you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to be uh, in Exodus. We started Exodus last week. <clears throat> we spent a lot of time in Genesis, uh, but we have to, you know, had to get up to speed on where uh, we're going because Exodus is just part of this story that's told at the beginning of Scripture, part of what's called the Pentateuch or the Torah. It's the first five books uh, that we have in our Bible. Uh, and so Exodus is very much a continuation. It, it picks up where Genesis lefts, leaves off. Uh, and so we looked at how these people, uh, how, how humans really, um, began in the Garden of Eden in this priest-like environment, right? Priests of all of creation, right? God's representative on earth made to rule over everything. So there's this priest representing him all over earth and, and, and because of sin, they're, they're cast out God comes and he, makes, he says he has this plan. Uh, the serpent tricks them, he's crafty and he fools them, uh, but through this man named Abraham, God says he's gonna put everything back together. Not because Abraham's special, not because Abraham's done anything, but because Abraham has faith in God. So he, he chooses Abraham and says that, you know what, I'm gonna bless the whole world. I'm gonna, I'm gonna through the line of this man who doesn't have kids, uh, married to a, a barren wife up to this point, I'm going to bless the whole world through his descendants, which will be a mighty, mighty nation. And that goes on to his son Isaac uh, and then to his son uh, Jacob. Now, at this point I must pause and let you know that last week I made a terrible, terrible mistake. Uh, I said repeatedly uh, that Jacob, whose name becomes Israel, and you've heard the 12 tribes of Israel, those are his 12 sons. I said repeatedly that Jacob had two wives, Leah and I said, Rebecca. That's not true, it's Rachel. I, I said repeatedly, probably for the same reason when we were studying First John, I kept calling him Paul. Uh, I don't know, he's stuck in your head and I can't let it go. Rebecca was his mom, right? It's all messed up. Anyway, so Rachel, Jacob has 12 sons by uh, Leah and Rachel uh, and, uh, and their maidservants. And so these are the 12 tribes of Israel. They end up through this crazy story involving one of his sons named Jacob, his favorite kid. They end up in... In Egypt, uh, out of the land that God promised to Abraham they would possess, and uh, that's where they are. Uh, but due to worry and fear, uh, as they grow, God, God blesses them. So Exodus begins, Exodus 1 begins with this Eden-like declaration, right, that, that God is blessing them and they are multiplying. They're, they're being fruitful like he told them to do in the garden. And so this, but, but there's still death, so we're not in Eden, but there's this this blessing it sounds so very promising in the first few verses but then it grows dark pretty pretty fast uh the pharaoh doesn't remember joseph who was big major a big deal in um saving uh, the whole world really but uh, god uses joseph to do this he didn't remember joseph anymore so generations have gone by and the king rises and he looks around at these people who are plentiful and he because of fear and because of uh xenophobia all kinds of reasons he he decides that they, something must be done. And so he's gonna take them into forced labor so the people of God end up in slavery. He's afraid that they're gonna rise up and that they're gonna fight against him if something goes bad or escape. And so he begins to deal shrewdly with them, which is amazing because you read back in Genesis that if God, God, God said to Abraham, if people bless you, I'll, I'll bless them. And if people curse you, like I'm, I'm gonna curse them. And so you see this and he sees God blessing these people and instead of recognizing for what it is and saying, well, I will bless them too, he decides to come against them. He's setting himself up for a fight, not against the people of Israel, but against their God because their God is a God who fights for them. 
So this is all setting up in the first chapter. Uh, we're setting up for this fight. Uh, but it's dark times. People are in slavery. And not only that, the way that the king decides to deal wisely, to deal craftily with them, is that he decides that he's going to uh, go with, to, uh, talk to the, the midwives that, that help deliver the babies and say, if a male child is born, just kill it. If a female is, you know, females, if it's, it's a baby girl, let, let it live. And the midwives, because they fear God, uh, disobey Pharaoh. And they make up a, a lie and go, uh, no, I can't do that. Uh, we, 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 you know what? These, uh, these women are having babies uh, before we even get there. Like, I don't know right? They don't tell you. And so he says, you know what? Fine. Just take the, all the two-year-olds that we find that are young men, we'll just take them, we'll throw them in the Nile. Like, that's how dark of a time that we're in. It's brutal. Uh, it's just awful. Uh, and so what's great about what we're doing? I hope that you're reading scripture. I, one of the things, the best things that you can do as a Christian, as a believer to grow in your faith is to read the Bible. Uh, daily, just make it part of your habit. Uh, but one of the things that, that we're in, or the style of the, of the text that we're in, is narrative. The Bible's full of all different types of styles. Uh, uh, but one of the primary ones is narrative, story. And story and narrative are neat because narrative, it, it differs from a statement or an axiom, right? I could tell you a thing, and you go, oh, well, you just told me this fact. This information, thank you. But I could also give you that information in a story, right? Like I could write or craft a story or we could look at a story. So narrative is a story that's teaching us something by drawing us in. Sometimes we don't even know that we are being shaped in what we value, right? That's what's going on when we flip on a movie. They're telling us a story, shaping our soul in a certain direction, making us want certain things, yeah? So what's beautiful about a narrative is that that it kind of draws you in to teach you a thing, we see that we are in dark times. Uh, and in this passage, babies being killed, it's just, it's just awful. Uh, but what we learn from this story, right, as we read Exodus, what we see is that behind this dark times, there's a God who's working. When we read the story, we, we, we slowly learn, like we, we begin to anticipate, especially second, third, fourth, fifth time through it, we see and anticipate, yes, it looks dark, but there's a God who's working. And the story draws us into this truth, different than just saying a statement. But when we get to Isaiah, and Isaiah says there's a light that will dawn in the darkness, the prophet prophesies this, you say, yeah, you know what? I read about that in Exodus. I know what you're talking about. So when Jesus arrives and the light come into the world, you not only remember that Isaiah promised it, but you remember Exodus, that this is the way that God works in dark times. He's working behind the scenes and a light will dawn. And Exodus is teaching us that through narrative. Hebrew, uses, uh, Hebrew narrative uses repetition. Uh, really, like all, you know, like all storytelling does, right? Um, all right, just give me, give me four minutes. Four, six minutes to nerd out for a second. Just say six minutes. Just give me six. Here's, because, look, so here's the deal. And all storytellers do this. Let's just take an example. Uh, uh, meetings at wells in the Bible. Meetings at wells. Uh, this, so in today's text, when we get there, and we'll get there eventually, just you know, wait for it. Uh, when, in today's text, uh, Moses is going to be at a well and he's going to meet his wife. And here's the thing. You're reading this narrative. If you're reading through the, the second or third time, by the time you get to, even the first time, you're like, I've read this before, right? Where, where have I read this before? 
And the answer is, you read it in Genesis, not just once, but twice. Twice, two of the fathers, two of the great leaders of Israel, they're at a well and they meet their wives there. Abraham's old and he's like, listen, he says to his servant, don't take a wife from one of these people, one of these women around here. I don't like them. Go back to where I'm from, find a wife for my son there. And so the servant goes and he sits at the well and he meets Rebecca. There's a, there's a pattern in these stories. It happens again. Isaac meets Rachel at a well. And the pattern goes something like this. There's a journey. Somebody's in a foreign land. They meet a woman at a well. There's an encounter at the well. Someone draws water from the well. And then somebody, uh, there's a news, somebody goes and announces the news that this has happened, that water's been drawn from the well. This person's here. And then somebody comes and shows hospitality. And then the two parties are somehow joined together. This is a pattern that we see in Scripture. And here's why that's important. Why, why are you telling me that? Why are you nerding out? Here's why this is important. Because, well, you know how storytellers can play with expectations? Yeah? I mean, if you're watching a horror movie, right? And someone does something they ought not to do, well, that person's dying first. Or if they decide to split up, you're like, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Why would you split up? That's exactly how people die. Like, you know, and so the like, storytellers know that you're expecting that, and they begin to play with the expectation. So what happens when you get to John 4, and Jesus meets a woman at a well? You're like, what? W- what's happening? And he meets a woman at a well, and he's traveling through an area that he's not normally in, and, and he meets this woman at the well, and he says, draw me some water, or I'll draw you water, and she's like, you can't draw water, you have a bucket. He says, I, you know, if you'd asked me for water, you'd, you'd have known that I could give you living water, and she's like, what's going on? Turns out, she's been married five times before, living with a dude that's not even her husband, and she, it, all this whole scene is happening, and if you're reading this, knowing what's happened in Genesis and Exodus, you're like, what is happening? Because in the previous chapter, John chapter 3, you know what John calls Jesus? Bridegroom. And it leads right into John 4 where this scene happens. And you're like, what is he saying about this Jesus? Water is drawn. She sees this. She gets up. like She receives, goes and grabs the whole, the whole city and says, listen, you have to come see this guy. There's the announcement. They come back. They see Jesus. And they ask him to stay with him for a little while. And he stays there. And he leaves joined to this woman in a new way. Joined to the whole city in a new way. This announcement that somehow we will be married to this Christ. That's not a story that started in John 4. That started in Genesis. And the, na- the narrator begins to play with that. That is one of them. I'm going to do a second one. Uh, just, this one's fast, though. So you remember in Genesis 3? If you've read it, if you haven't, you should go read this. In Genesis 3... It's the temptation of Adam and Eve, and it's by the serpent. And it tempts, tempts Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve fall into sin, rebel against God, do what he said not to do. God curses the serpent, the serpent, and, says, and it has something to do with the seed of the woman. He says, listen, here's what's going to happen. The seed of this woman will come and crush you. You will try to take him, but he will crush you. The serpent threatening the woman and the child being at risk. This starts in Genesis 3. It's going to happen in today's story. Serpent, that pharaoh, that crafty one. It's going to happen again in Jesus. He's going to bite at his heel. He's going to die, but guess what? He's going to rise again from the dead and defeat that serpent. And then, in the weirdest Christmas story of all time, Revelation 12, 
No lie, I'm not making this up. Go read it later. Revelation 12, it says that the woman is giving birth and it's all this apocalyptic language. Like how do you describe what you're seeing in heaven? That's what John's doing. He's describing what he's seeing in heaven in this vision. And he says that he sees in heaven this woman is about to give birth and there's a dragon waiting for the child to be born. He's gonna devour the dragon. The dragon's gonna devour the child. But God sweeps in and saves the child. And then he tells us, who. then a few verses later, John actually tells us who the serpent was. Satan, the crafty serpent from the very beginning. And God delivers. We see these patterns are one of the reasons that we read scripture and read it over and over and over and over again is because these narrative, narratives are so beautiful, so masterful. That's just two, I could do this for weeks. But I'll stop and get around to the sermon now. That was more than six minutes. We'll run through the rest of it. So we see the repetition. So what we're set up for in chapter two is the showdown. So you know what? Let's read today's text. <laughs> Exodus 2 says this. Oh, wait, you know what? Let me back up one verse. It says, a Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that's born to the Hebrews, you shall cast in the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Chapter two. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. All right, hold on a second, hold on a second. So listen, if you're reading this for the first time, you're like, okay. Levite, son of Levi, one of those 12 sons of Israel, one of the 12 of Jacob, right? So you're reading this the first time, you're like, oh, Levi. If you're reading it the second time, you know something that you didn't know the first time around, that God is gonna make the descendants of Levi priests. So you read this and you go, oh. Second time through, you're like, oh, these, this is the descendant, this is the priestly line. Okay, so that's in your head. So these priests, this, this man who's at the house of Levi, the priestly line, will take, oh, also, hold on a second, sorry, 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 sorry. It's just too rich. I'm so sorry. You, you would think that Levi was given the priestly line because like, he was like a priestly guy, right? <laughs> nope. Levi is actually part of the priestly line. You know what his father, when he's passing out the blessings, you know what he says to him? He says, you're a man of violence, so I'm going to scatter you. So when they get to the new land and everybody's getting land divvied up, the Levites don't get any land. They get 48 cities scattered among them because Levi was violent. That's what the priestly line comes from. Isn't that fascinating? Not because they were, you would think priestly line, that must have been the super good son. Mm -mm. Trick question. None of them were very good except for Joseph. All right, here we go. Where was that verse one? Oh boy. Uh, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived, bore a son, and when she saw that the son, that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took, him from, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, dabbed it with a bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds of the riverbank. All right, stop, real quick. A couple things. Uh, the word here for the basket, literally the same Hebrew word for ark. Paste, placed in, just God saving through placing a chosen one in an ark. And also, by the way, the word reed here puts, puts him among the reed, this is a hint. This is like a, a, a foreshadowing. Uh, just genius storytellers. Uh, the word read here is the same word for Red Sea. Literally the same word. They're gonna cross the Red Sea later on, the Reed Sea, whatever, I don't, it doesn't matter. Uh, either way, it's a miracle. He's hinting that this one who will cross the Red Sea is hidden among the reeds. Just masterful storytelling. I just don't want you to miss it. Why geek out and why nerd out? It's because it's so just, just ridiculously good. Put him on in it, place it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what will be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to the bathe at the river. And while she was, uh, her young woman uh, walked beside the river, she saw a basket among the reeds and, and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child. Behold, the baby was crying. 
And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went, called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me. I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. And she named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. The story begins to focus on this one man. It talks about the, before it talked about all of the Israelites, what's happening in Israel, how Pharaoh's dealing with them. And it zooms in on this Levite and this Levite family and this, child, this story of this child. Uh, and this... Um, descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but in the trouble they're going through, but it zooms in and talks about this Levite family. And we find something in this passage that's super interesting. Uh, You find unexpected help in an unexpected place, right? Here's what I mean. Back in chapter one, you find unexpected help from when Pharaoh says, listen, we're we're gonna kill all the babies. You find unexpected help from the Egyptian midwives, they're going to show up and deliver. They, they, they show up and they fear God, so they say, we're not going to do what Pharaoh asked. Unexpected help from an unexpected place. And here we find unexpected help from an unexpected place. It's Pharaoh's daughter herself. Because of what Pharaoh has declared, that we're going to kill all of the babies, the mother does technically what was, she technically put him in the river, but she built him an ark, right? And God protects him. He ends up among the reeds, and because of what he declared, what Pharaoh declared, the babies must be cast into the river. The one who will lead the people out, the very thing that he feared, will be brought into his very own house by his own daughter. Unexpected help from an unexpected place. Very fascinating. It's also interesting, by the way, who the heroes are so far in chapter one and two. Right? I mean, you, you would think, like, what's, who's Exodus about? And, like, your reflex action, probably Moses, uh, push that way back down inside and go, it's about God, primarily about God. But ex- Moses is, the major, is a major player in the story of Exodus. But so far, the ones who God has used to accomplish his plan, Egyptian midwives who feared him and God protects his plan through them. Then his sister, Pharaoh says, which by the way kind of just jumps in the story out of nowhere, right? So it's like, hey, he had a son named Moses and you get this thing as his sister's watching him. You're like, where'd she come from? Uh, it's amazing. He's an older sister. It's amazing, right? Because Pharaoh said, we're gonna kill all of the baby boys and God uses his sister <laughs> to save him and bring about his plan. And how brave she had to have been, right? To approach the Pharaoh's daughter with her. Like, she has her entire like, crew there with her. How brave she had to have been to run up and propose, hey, you know what? I know, a, I know somebody who can nurse him for you. To see that she took compassion on him. And to bring him, you go from a situation where you place your child in a river and you think how, he's going to die of exposure or, or uh, I guess it's denial. I would assume a crocodile's going to get him. I don't know. Like you're just like freaking out, right? Like I'm going to lose my son. What heartache must have gone into that moment, that attempt to save him, to flip it to a little bit later that day, you're getting paid to nurse your son. Unreal. And then it's Pharaoh's own daughter who names him Moses, which by the way, in Egyptian, kind of sounds like son. But in Hebrew, kind of sounds like drawn out of the water. I'm not gonna, I don't have time to do the patterns of water and being drawn out of, but like it goes all the way, all the way through. Baptism, you know, I don't have time. 
taken out of the water named Moses. Unbelievable. The bravery of these people, these women that God is using, they're the ones that are brave. They're the ones, when we first meet Moses, like when God first calls Moses, not brave. Kind of, kind of chicken. Like He's like, hey, we want you to go back to Pharaoh. Moses is like, oh uh, yeah, I don't want to do that. That sounds terrifying. Uh, I can't even talk well. Like, uh, seems like a bad plan. I think you have the wrong guy. That's Moses' reaction to God calling him to be obedient. But these people work in ordinary ways, in ordinary things, through ordinary means. Here's the reality. We all have people, well, I hope you have people in your life, let me show this way, that brought you up that you should be grateful for, that poured into your life in ordinary means, in ordinary ways, and in ordinary times. I think the people who had the biggest influence on my life, uh, I could give you a long list. Most of you would guess C.S. Lewis. He's up there. Not seminary professors, not C.S. Lewis. It's the men and women whose names I can't even remember who taught me Sunday school. That's who it is. Like, they were there every single week doing faithful things, teaching week in, week out faithfully, teaching week in and week out, sometimes not even understanding, most of the time probably badly because that's a hard thing to do, but they were there and faithful, and I'm deeply grateful for my parents. Taught me took me, dragged me kicking and streaming, screaming to church, to worship, doing ordinary things, working in my life in very ordinary ways, pointing me to Christ constantly. This is primarily the way that God seems to work in scripture. Yeah, we talk about Moses and what Moses did, but man, we don't even get to Moses without people doing what God would have them to do in very normal times, in very normal ways, doing what seems like very normal things in complicated times. Unbelievable. The the scripture doesn't hide this from us. This is how God works. Unbelievable. All right, next section. Verse 11. So one day when Moses had grown up, uh, so this is probably 40 years later, like at least Acts says it's 40 40 years later, so let's just go with what the Bible says. 40 years later or so, uh, one day Moses had grown up and he went out uh, to his people. And he looked out, so he probably is leaving the palace where he's grown up and he's going out to the people. And he looked at their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that. Seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling. And he said to to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you prince and judge over us? You mean to kill me as you killed that Egyptian? Moses was afraid. And thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. So in this section, we're seeing the preparation of Moses. We're seeing who he is. He's a, he is a, has position and authority. He's in some authority at least, or at least position, right? He's, he's in the Pharaoh's house. He's grown up there. As a matter of fact, in the next section, uh, when he's in Midian, they, they look at him and they think he's Egyptian because of how he's dressed probably, how he talks. He grew up Egyptian. So he, he's grown up with some privileged position and he seems to have this commitment to his people though, right? To God's people. He knows he's Hebrew, even though he's grown up in the Egyptian house. He knows that these are his people. He knows that they're enslaved. He sees them being mistreated and one day he goes out to see them. I don't know why, hang out with them. I don't know what. And he sees them being mistreated and he 
decides he's got to do something. This idea of, this seems to be just in him, this idea of justice and commitment to it. So, he, uh, there's a lot of argument over like, his motivation like, for like, literally thousands of years. Literally thousands of years. But it seems to me to be pretty clear that, that he knew he was about to do something wrong because the Bible says he looks this way and he looks that. And when no one was looking, so he knew what he was doing, he strikes this guy and he kills him, buries him in the sand. He's looking to, to help his people. He's looking to, to, I don't know, set them free from the oppression that they're under, uh, to take into his own hands the way of handling the situation. The next day, he goes back out to his people, the people that he's, I mean, I don't know, like maybe he's probably embarrassed about the, the murder, but he's out later, he's back down looking at his people and seeing what they're doing. He's probably like, look, I'm here for you. I'm here for you, <laughs> Right? And so he steps in and intercedes. Like, wait, no, two people fighting each other? Like, what's happening? Like, why would two brothers? He's like, he intercedes. Like, brothers, like, why would you do this? And one of the guys looks at him and he's like, who are you? I don't know you. I don't care about you. You don't have any authority here. But were you just going to murder me like you murdered that other dude? We don't know you. He's, and then he's like, oh my, he freaks out because everybody, because clearly somebody knows. I thought I did it in secret, but somebody knows. Pharaoh hears about it. He says, I'm going to kill you. Sets out to hurt, kill him. He has to flee and run. So you see Moses at roughly the age of 40, somewhere around the age of 40 probably. You see Moses rejected by the palace. He's got to flee from, Mo, from that. Rejected from his people. And I think, I wonder if in his mind, he goes and he sits down by a well and is like, I was just trying to help. God, what's going on? Like your people are oppressed and I was just trying to help. And he sits down by Oh, well, Moses is, um, well, he sits down by a well. He's in Midian. Please, he's out of town. And this is what happens. We're going to be fine. The priest of Midian had seven daughters. He sits down by a well. This is verse 16. Now, the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But the shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, real, he has another name, Jethro, but he says, how is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. And she gave birth to a son. And he called his name Gershom. For he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Moses goes, and I, I like the idea. We see more Moses. He tried to help, he's trying to help out in a fight in, in Egypt uh, between two brothers, and, and he gets in trouble, has to flee. And, and then he arrives in Midian sitting in a well, and he, he involves himself in another scrap immediately, right? Some women are out trying to water their flock. Something that apparently happens regularly, because like, they come home early, and their dad is like, What's up? Like, didn't you get, like, run off today like you usually do? Like, he's like, how are you so home so, uh, home so early? So it's a regular occurrence. And it's like, this dude, this Egyptian showed up and helped us. I, I like the idea of this 40-year-old Moses being kind of scrappy, right? <laughs> like, like, the seven, like, these herdsmen show up, and Moses is like, not today. And uh, he, he does, he's, he draws water. He's, he's this, this guy that intercedes. He's like, it's not, like, we're not, I'm not going to have this happen. He's this sense of justice. He seems to just built into him. I mean, other when he's murdering people. So he uh, goes home with this, this Midian. And it's a sweet story. Like, oh, like Moses has kind of found a place, right? Uh, until he has the first 
son, and his first kid, and he names his kid, I'm a sojourner. Or how about this, I don't belong here. Uh, we actually know, uh, for Exodus later, Moses, he, uh, Moses comes back to Egypt when he's 80 years old. So the first 40 years of his life, he was nursed by his mom, but he grew up in the palace. So he was an outsider in the palace because he's a Hebrew. And among the Hebrews, he was an outsider because he's from the palace. He really didn't have a home. And then when he has to flee, he ends up for 40 more years in Midian, this other place, like married to a daughter of a Midianite priest for 40 years. And he recognizes, I'm a sojourner here. I don't belong here either. If you're curious if it gets better for Moses in home, uh, he spends the last 40 of his years of his life wandering in a desert and only gets a glimpse of what home would be. Point is this. Moses' life seems pretty rough. <laughs> always being pushed, always being pulled, but he's called a servant of God because he serves God where God places him. Unbelievable. An outsider among his own people. But he goes back. That's later. It says this. 23, let's finish chapter two, we'll be done. Uh, during those days, uh, the king of Egypt died. During those days, another 40 years. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and God knew. Still dark times, right? We, 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 we kind of zoomed in on the story of Moses and this, this kind of twisted situation, and he flees, and then 80 years later, we look back, and guess what's going on? People are still in slavery. There are people who have born and lived and died their whole lives in, in slavery. 400 years, the Bible tells us. This went on. They dwelled in a foreign land. We're still in the middle of dark times where this chapter ends. That's what this is setting up. But God remembers. In the Bible, when God remembers things, it's not like, you know, when I can't find my keys, right? Or I can't find my phone, right? It's not like God's like, oh, I remember where I put it. No, that's not it. When God remembers in the Bible, it means God is about to act on behalf of his people. That's what remember means. God is going to act on the behalf of his people. So this, is, this whole chapter ends, I know we're in dark times. I know where things are dark, but I have heard my people. I'm aware of their crying, and I am about to act on their behalf. One of the things that's really interesting about this story, and many of, you know what, the whole Old Testament really, and even into the New Testament, you know what? Yeah, even, you know what, even to today, Right? One of the interesting things about the, God, the way that God works is that his plans always seem really fragile at the start. <laughs> like his plans always are like, hey, you're like, here's how I'm going to work this out. Um, I'm going to take some Egyptian midwives uh, and uh, I'm going to save people by, uh, they're going to obey me and fear me and that's how uh, I'm going to work my plan through these Egyptian midwives. If without, without them, uh, you know, it seems kind of like a, a dicey start. Like they're not even Hebrew, Right? And then uh, I'm going to use a sister uh, to, to rescue a, a child that, that, that you, is placed in the Nile, right? Uh, I'm going to rescue. God, this seems like a re, like, is there a backup plan? Like, is there a plan B we could look at? Because this seems dicey. No, no, no it gets better. Uh, there's going to be uh, the Pharaoh's daughter. The Pharaoh's daughter, the one that's killing the baby boys? The daughter of the one that's killing the baby boys? Yeah, I'm going to use her to draw him. I was like, this, I, don't, I don't love this plan, God. I don't love it. 
Matter of fact, if you back up in the Genesis, the whole thing seems dicey. You're reading God's plan after Abraham, and you're reading the people that are descendants of this man named Abraham, and you're like, this plan is not going to turn out great. And for a while, it looks like it doesn't. It looks like his plans are so fragile. And then you get to the New Testament, though, and it gets, well, no, the exact same thing happens. Mary, an unwed young woman, has a child, and the ruling authority tries to kill all the baby boys. Uh, It's almost like this huge risk is constant, and everything that God is doing is hanging by a thread, and the power of the world that comes against it involves armies and rulers and powerful, powerful authorities. That's what comes against it. It's almost like the world is not eagerly awaiting the rescue of the God that does all this, and instead, with just maniacal madness, awaiting to undo everything that God is trying to do. That is what the world is trying to do. But yet, God's beginnings always seem so fat, fragile. Jesus, the Messiah, when he comes, he identifies with his people. He, he goes down into Egypt like they did. He, he identifies with their path and their traveling. He comes out, declared the true son. Comes out of Egypt, back into his ministry, declared the true son. He even says in John 10, if you want what uh, Exodus 2 says uh, in story form, introduces in story form, didactically Jesus says it this way. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me, greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. God's plans for redemption, his plans for repairing everything, if you read it clearly, always seem like they're just a second apart from falling apart completely. And I'll I'll tell you this, it seems that way today sometimes, doesn't it? Right, like it's the news that you get if you like travel in like Christian like Twitter circles or whatever, like, like all you get is like all these statistics about how people are leaving the church, how everything is broken, all of this terrible stuff that happens. Like you just constantly get this and you begin to feel like, oh my goodness, like it's all hanging by a thread as if it depended on you and me. And Jesus says, hey, you know what? Sometimes it's gonna look like it's hanging from a thread, but here's what you need to know about you. Here's what you need to know about you. Nobody will ever be able to snatch you. Nothing will ever be, not even death will be able to snatch you out of my hand. Because you're mine. And it may look like it's hanging by a thread, but you are in the firm grip of God by faith in Jesus Christ. So, we learned some things about faith in this chapter. Uh, what faith looks like, how we are saved by faith. And, and, and we have this beautiful narrative to teach us so much about faith. Uh, the Pharaoh, uh, the thing, here's, here's where Pharaoh screwed up. Well, one of the ways that Pharaoh screws up uh, is that uh, when he was running the math on how to handle the situation, he left God out of the equation. We do that too, right? Sometimes we're running the math on how things are supposed to go and we forget and leave God out. But here's the deal. Here's what we need to do. As, we, as, we, as dark times, will, when they come, right? This too will pass, right? Whatever you're in, this too will pass. When dark times arrive, our faith has to grow. And so here's how we, we see that, that faith works. Uh, one is this learning, and this is why we read narrative. One, it's, it's so good to revisit the Old Testament and to read these stories of God working so that we can learn that God is always at work. That under every single thing that's going on, there is a secret 
not always revealed, providential plan that God is always working in a very purposeful way to bring about bringing the people of God to himself. This, what, you want to read it didactically? Paul writes about this in Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That's what Exodus 2 is. All things are working together even when they look like they're hanging by a thread. Also, faith works in ordinary places, in ordinary life, right? I think we're often looking for these huge moments to be faithful in, right? This huge, like, I, I grew up just constantly waiting for the next temptation, which is not a bad thing. Like, sin is, it, it, it's, it's crouching, right? It's trying to, it wants to devour you. I'm not saying you don't be ready, but I'm saying I was looking for these huge moments, huge moments, these huge battles that I was gonna fight, and I was just getting whooped on the daily in little bitty things. I sounded kind of country. Getting whooped on the daily? That is not in my manuscript. I don't know what just happened. You know what I mean? In the little bitty faithful decisions that you're supposed to make every day that don't seem like a big deal, I'm saving up for the big fight and losing the daily battle. It seems to me that God works his plans out even in those places, maybe primarily in those places. We look for the huge moments, but perhaps it's in the faith and the bravery of the young women who said, you know what, Uh, we're gonna disobey Pharaoh even though that could mean death. Uh, To the daughter, to the mom who said, I'm gonna disobey Pharaoh even though that could mean death. To the the young woman who brought uh, Moses into his house even though it could mean death. To the women who brought Moses home and he lived, like all of these little bitty moments in your day, you do not know what God is working to accomplish. You don't know. You want to live a faithful life. You want faith to grow in your heart. Man, where, like, where are you serving, right? Like, find a place. Your neighbor, like, it sounds, sounds crazy. Like, could God work big things through me having my neighbor to dinner? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, he could. Absolutely, he will. You might not ever get to see how that plays out, but for sure. You, here's, here's one. Forgiving someone who has hurt your feelings, that sounds like a little bitty thing. You think I could work his entire salvation plan out in people's lives that way? 100, for sure he can. In the little bitty things that we do daily, God is working huge things. This is how he's bringing about the salvation. Like what kind of, can you believe a story that says how is God gonna bring Jesus into the world, salvation and redeem everything and make everything new? And you're gonna go, hey, you know what? It involves two Egyptian maidservants. What? Yeah. What do they do? They just don't obey Pharaoh. What? Yeah, that's part of his plan. And he's doing this in our life. And our faith grows that way. The other thing about faith that we learn from chapter two is, uh, is patient. I think we all want immediate results from our faith. <laughs> Moses was 80 years old when he had to go toe-to-toe with Pharaoh. For 40 years, he's been a sojourner, not belonging where he was. And we want it to happen today. I don't understand. I've been praying for two weeks already. Why hasn't God fixed the thing? 
faith requires patience. It's one of the reasons that we read and study these stories over and over and over again to remind ourselves that God is working behind the scenes and our faith is rewarded, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what he said he was gonna do, that he is king, that he will come and make all things new. That is where our hope lies, no matter what is happening. Here, you wanna read it from the New Testament didactically? Peter says this, do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord, to the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He works on his time to accomplish a thing. How about Hebrews? Uh, the author of Hebrews writes this, uh, though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherited the promises. Your faith is not wasted. God knows God is working. Here is an entire book full of evidence that it's how he does it. Yes, pray for immediate deliverance. I'm for that. If you're struggling with a thing, pray for immediate deliverance. Sometimes God does that. Stories in that too. But a lot of times, it's perseverance. It's slow faith in loneliness. It's slow faith in difficult relationships. It's slow, patient faith that God is working when it's hard to love someone. It's slow, patient faith in serving where maybe I don't want to serve. It's all of these things, God working these things out among us to bring about salvation. Persevering faith. Faith that trusts that God is who he says he is, that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is, that he's done what he said he's gonna do, that he's working inside of us to bring about not just our salvation, but the remaking of all the world. Through what? Our obedience. Isn't that crazy? What a gift. Let's pray. Father, how beautiful. How beautiful you are working out. You don't work your your means of salvation out among the wealthy and the rich, among the capable, but you work your plan of salvation, your plan of redemption, of making all things new through the simple, through the obedient. We don't have to rise to some level or achievement in this world for you to work in our lives, to use us. You are doing it all of the time in unexpected ways. God, give us eyes to see, just Holy Spirit grow inside of us this faith to see how, the, how beautiful it is that you work in ordinary obedience to bring about the changes that will remake all of creation. That's how you do it. It's unbelievable. That you don't just work among the perfect and the righteous and the talented and the wealthy, but you are remaking everything through the crooked sticks that we are. It's all you have to work with. May we be overwhelmed with your beauty. May we worship you for your goodness. May we be overwhelmed with joy that you are working things out in a way that will astound us. And there's nothing that can happen in the meantime that will ever take us out of your hand. Give us faith. In Christ's name we pray, amen.